You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, September 21st. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Foothill Dry Ice, family-owned dry ice manufacturers in Grass Valley with delivery service available, also supplying conventional wet ice, open daily 8.30 to 3, open daily 8.30 to 3, extended hours during power outage emergencies, information at foothilldryice.com. And the Center for the Arts presents flat picker Kyle Ledson, who started writing tunes coupled with crafty lyrics at just eight years old, live from the Center on September 25th at 7 p.m., thecenterforthearts.org. Following NPR headlines and regional weather, Keith Porter talks with Janeth Marletti, Executive Director of Gold Country Senior Services. NPR reports on the future of the Affordable Care Act in a Supreme Court without Ginsburg. We have today's national Native news. Cities are struggling to clear a garbage glut in a stay-at-home world, NPR reports. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Wings, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. With President Donald Trump saying he expects to announce his pick for the Supreme Court by the end of this week, the respective sides in the debate over the timing of an appointment to fill the seat vacated by the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg are doubling down. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he expects to bring a nominee to the Senate floor this year. We're already hearing incorrect claims that there is not sufficient time to examine and confirm a nominee. We can debunk this myth in about 30 seconds. But Democratic leader Chuck Schumer says McConnell should follow the precedent he himself set in 2016 when he refused to act on President Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the high court. The stakes of this election, the stakes of this vacancy, concern no less than the future of fundamental rights for the American people. Justice Ginsburg died Friday at the age of 87. New York City is the first major city school district to start welcoming students back to the classroom today. But NPR's Anya Kamenetz reports some teachers are not all that thrilled about it. Three- and four-year-olds wearing masks printed with Spider-Man and unicorns lined up outside public school buildings this morning for the first day of in-person instruction in New York City. After weeks of delays and disputes with the teacher union over safety and staffing, the city brought back students in 3K and pre-K, plus students with significant disabilities, for a total of some 90,000 in classes this week. Older students are set to phase in starting next week on a hybrid schedule, but even as classes got underway today, a caucus within the teacher union was preparing a protest march across three boroughs to keep classes remote. Anya Kamenetz, NPR News, New York. Iran says it's open to a full hostage exchange with the U.S. and may also still retaliate for the killing of a top Iranian general. Those were a couple of the headlines from Iran's foreign minister. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. 
Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif was fielding questions virtually from the Council on Foreign Relations, defending the execution of an Iranian wrestler and repeating that Iran is ready to exchange all prisoners with the U.S. Zarif was also asked whether Iran could still retaliate against the U.S. for killing a top Iranian general. The books are not closed. President Trump ordered the assassination of a national hero for Iran and a hero for the region. So the books are not closed. A Trump administration official responded, saying if Iran attacks Americans, it will, quote, pay a heavy price. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Stocks continued their downward slide on Wall Street today. The Dow was down more than 500 points. The Nasdaq fell 14 points. The S&P 500 dropped 38 points. This is NPR. Two Republican senators have introduced measures aimed at helping the coronavirus-slammed airline industry. The measure put forth by Senator Roger Wicker and Susan Collins would authorize $28 billion in payroll assistance to avoid thousands of layoffs that are set to begin October 1st when an initial airline industry aid package that included rules about layoffs expires. The measure would utilize $11 billion in new funds and $17.4 billion in repurposed money. Maryland is allowing restaurants to expand indoor dining capacity to 75% today. Governor Larry Hogan is encouraging Marylanders to dine out despite concerns over COVID-19. Emily Sullivan at member station WYPR has the story. Governor Hogan made the announcement just in time for Maryland's first statewide restaurant week. He hopes the promotional dining event with special menus and discounts will draw people out of their homes and into restaurants. The Republican has cited Maryland's seven-day coronavirus positivity rate of 2.85 percent. But data from Johns Hopkins University, which is calculated differently, says otherwise. It shows a state positivity rate of 5.7 percent. That falls above the widely suggested 5 percent ceiling for loosening restrictions. A few Maryland localities will not be implementing the new indoor dining capacity, including Baltimore. Mayor Jack Young says the city doesn't have the numbers needed to responsibly ease the restriction. For NPR News, I'm Emily Sullivan in Baltimore. Oil prices fell today. Oil down $1.80 a barrel to $39.31 a barrel. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley and Nevada City area tonight, widespread haze is expected, with a low around 58. On Tuesday, widespread haze will turn to sunny skies, with a high near 80, and Tuesday night will be mostly clear, with a low around 56. And Wednesday, in the foothills, skies are expected to be sunny, with a high near 79, and mostly clear skies overnight, with a low around 55. In Sacramento tonight, there'll be widespread haze with a low around 60. On Tuesday, widespread haze will turn to sunny skies with a high near 86. And Tuesday night is expected to be mostly clear with a low around 57. And on Wednesday in the Sacramento region, sunny skies are expected with a high near 86 and an overnight low around 61 with mostly clear skies. In Truckee tonight, widespread haze is expected with a low around 44. Tuesday will be partly sunny with a high near 73. And Tuesday night, widespread haze is expected after 11 p.m. with a low around 40. On Wednesday in the Truckee region, widespread haze is expected to turn into sunny skies with a high near 75 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 40. 
And in Angels Camp tonight, widespread haze is expected with a low around 63. On Tuesday, widespread haze is expected to turn into sunny skies with a high near 85 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 60. And Wednesday in the Angels Camp region is expected to be sunny with a high near 83 and a low around 59 with clear skies overnight. I'm Keith Porter with KVMR News, and I'm talking today with Janeth Moraletti, who is the Executive Director of Gold Country Senior Services. Welcome to KVMR, Janeth, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, and and thank you for all the audience that is listening right now. So, Janeth, tell us a little bit about Gold Country Senior Services. It's an organization that's been around for a while in our community and has lots of different things that you're doing. So tell us um, a little bit of the history and and, uh, what kinds of things are happening with Gold Country Senior Services now. So we actually changed our name. We used to be called Gold Country Community Services. We want to support seniors that are living um, independently in their home. So we really focus on ensuring that they have meals for many of our seniors who are frail and don't have support or are low income and they don't have the resources to have meals or even prepare meals because their frailty um, and many disabilities that they may have does not allow them to stand up and cook a meal or go grocery shopping. So we run the Meals on Wheels program where volunteers deliver the meals to the seniors in their home. And we also run the firewood program where in our rural community, firewood is something that is very much of a need, um, especially among the senior population. And we have volunteers that cut and split uh, firewood and we deliver that to seniors. So that's where we have an event coming up that we are requesting, you know, the community to join us for the last 30 years. It has become a tradition. They bring their kids. And we just load up firewood and take it to the seniors because we want to make sure that they stay warm this winter. So volunteers are are very useful, and I would guess, in the process of uh, delivering the firewood. Is the firewood processed into uh, stove lengths and all of that at this point in time? Yes. So what we do is our volunteers, um, people donate wood from the community. A, A tree was fallen, and they can't pay a tree company to come in and pick it up. So our volunteers go and get it. And then they cut it, they split it, and they make it into the firewood that our seniors would need. And then we bring the community every year, um, and they help us load the firewood to the trucks of the volunteers that are going to deliver it to the seniors. And so that's all happening in the near future, right? The delivery. Yeah, so we have our first, our first event that's coming up this Saturday, and that's where we're asking anybody that is interested. It's also a great workout <laughs> to do on a weekend. By the time you do about 20 minutes of loading firewood, you realize that is hard work. So you get a really good workout out of it, too. And then you're helping seniors. Um, And we may not be thinking about cold weather right now, but before you know it, it's going to, the temperatures are going to drop. And we want to make sure all of our seniors, especially the ones that are low income and need help, that they don't have to worry about firewood in their house, that we can provide that for them. Right. Well, today is the solstice, right? So uh, from now on, the nights are going to be longer than the day, so it is going to begin to get cool again very soon. 
Yes, our goal is to support the health and wellness of and independence of the seniors um, and really advocate on their needs that they have. And if we can help make things a little bit easier for them, then that's what we want to do. So how can volunteers help? What do they have to do to be uh, willing to be a volunteer and helpful? So for the Firewood event, this was a per- this is a perfect scenario where if you never volunteered with us before, if you've never done this before, you just show up. 9 o'clock in the morning, and then we can train you. And really what you're going to do is trucks are going to pull up. You're going to load up the firewood to their trucks. Or if you have a truck, you're going to pull up, and then we're going to have volunteers load up your truck. We're going to give you directions to a senior's home, and you're going to go and drop off the wood. So anybody that's interested in joining can just show up at the yard at 12503 Brunswick Road in Grass Valley. And we provide refreshments. We're going to have masks. We're going to have gloves. Anything that you need to volunteer. This volunteer opportunity has been going on for 30 years. And it's really touching to see, you know, kids that were in junior high. And now they're coming in with their trucks and their families to continue to do this every fall. So it's it's a really nice way to, us together as a community, help help seniors that need our help. So uh, you, I assume, you have lots of volunteers helpful in the meals program, too. And how do volunteers sign up for that? It wouldn't, wouldn't be quite so casual, I assume, to just show up with a truck. Yes. Yeah, so for the Meals on Wheels, we ask that people contact our office. And then what we do is we talk to you a little bit more about what that volunteer opportunity is going to be. We want to get to know your schedule. Usually Meals on Wheels volunteers um, volunteer maybe once a month. Some of them want to volunteer every week. So it really depends on your availability and and if you're desired to do it once a week, once a month, however you want to do it. We also have volunteers that come in when we deliver emergency meals as we are going through the power outages and snow is going to be coming up. We want to make sure that in case we cannot deliver to the seniors that they have emergency meals that they could use. So it just depends on, on what people may want to volunteer. They, the first step is to either go on our website and click that you're interested under the volunteer or call the office. We will talk to you about what those volunteer opportunities are. And then we have you um, meet with another volunteer and they can kind of show you around. The volunteers in the Meals on Wheels will tell you that they are so committed to their seniors. And that's why the majority of them have been volunteering for us for 5, 10. We have one that's been volunteering for 20 years. Never misses a route. <laughs> it's a really re- rewarding activity for some folks then. So, Janeth, what's ahead for Gold Country Senior Services? Our goal, again, is to continue to expand our meals programs and our firewood program because we know that in this community there's a lot of seniors over the age of 60 that need help. And we need to make sure that any senior that needs help with food and firewood, they get those services. So we're expanding all of our programs, but our ultimate goal is to secure and establish a senior center for this community um, because we don't have one. And the last time there was a senior center was 10 years ago. So the time is now to really embark on that journey and establish a senior center because our seniors depend on it. Oh, excellent plan. So we've talked a little bit about how volunteers can help, but uh, how can the community support Gold Country Senior Services, Janeth? What would you ask of our community? 
I would say the first step is really to help us bring awareness that we have seniors that need help. Get to know your neighbors. So I would always encourage, let's bring awareness. If we know the senior that needs help, let's connect them to services. Let's figure out how we can help. Number two is volunteer. We really depend on our volunteers to help us support all of our programs and services. Other people may choose to make a donation. Make a donation in anything that you feel that would make an impact to the seniors. Meals is the number one need that we have in our community, followed by firewood. But even getting to know emergency meals. You know, one, we've been giving emergency meals to all of our seniors. And someone suggested not only should we give emergency meals, but we should add a flashlight, which we added a flashlight thanks to the donations of people. Then someone else said seniors really should have a whistle. So now we're working on how do we secure whistles because that makes perfect sense. Our seniors need a way to alert the emergency personnel that they need help. So if you are inclined, we need help with getting whistles. And it really is going to be a conversation of what we can do to just help our seniors a little bit more. Excellent. Well, Jana, thank you very much for helping us understand a little bit more fully the role and the issues of facing Gold Country Senior Services. I've been speaking today with Janeth Maraletti, Executive Director of Gold Country Senior Services. Thank you, Janeth, for joining us today. And thank you for having me and giving us the opportunity to share the work that we do to support seniors. The fight over who will replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be fierce because Supreme Court decisions are so high stakes. Among the highest decisions on health care and abortion. And this morning, we're going to talk about both, starting with health care. The court will be back in session on October 5th. Several state attorneys general are challenging the Affordable Care Act. They want it thrown out. Tens of millions of people would lose Medicaid benefits and more than 100 million people would lose protections for pre-existing conditions. So very high stakes. Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News is with us now. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Where do things stand with the Affordable Care Act? Well, things are tenuous. Uh, Congress in 2017 failed to repeal and replace the law, but it did eliminate the penalty for not having insurance as part of its big year-end tax bill. Uh, Just a couple of months later, a group of Republican attorneys general and governors sued. They said that without the penalty, the law was now unconstitutional. That's because the law, they say, was only upheld by the Supreme Court in 2012 because the penalty was a constitutional exercise of Congress's taxing power, so no tax. No Affordable Care Act. Now, most legal experts didn't think a lot of this case, including some of the scholars who had argued to strike or cripple the law in cases that went to the court in 2012 and again in 2015. But a federal judge in Texas bought the argument in late 2018. And in 2019, an appeals court panel in New Orleans agreed, although it sent the case back to the lower court to see if the whole law really had to go. Democratic attorneys general who are now defending the law because the Trump administration is not were worried about leaving the health law in limbo for as long as that would take, which could be years. They asked the Supreme Court to step in right away. The court agreed, but it didn't agree to decide it before the election. Okay, so without Justice Ginsburg, what are the possibilities for how the court might decide this case? 
Well, there are several. If there are still eight justices, it could be a four-to-four tie. That would mean that the lower court ruling would stand, but it might just apply in that circuit, so Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. Or the court could ask that the case be re-argued when there's a ninth justice. Mm. Uh, The court could also decide that the individual mandate, the requirement for people to have insurance, even though with no penalty, uh, is unconstitutional. But the rest of the law might be able to survive. Uh, It's worth mentioning that even a limited decision could strike down the protections for pre-existing conditions, very popular, because those are considered tightly linked to the mandate, or the court could strike down the entire law, which seems unlikely with only eight justices, but you never know, and possible if President Trump manages to fill the seat right away. What happens if the Supreme Court does strike down the entire law? Well, the word most health experts I've talked to about this is chaos. Not only could more than 20 million Americans immediately lose insurance coverage, uh, popular provisions like letting young adults stay on their parents' health plans, guaranteeing coverage of pre-existing conditions and expanded prescription drug and preventive benefits for seniors on Medicare would all be eliminated. Uh, it would also impact health care providers, hospitals and insurers and doctors um, who the way they are bill and are paid is intimately tied in to the law. So the court's hearing the case in November, but we likely won't get a decision until next year anyway. So if Joe Biden is elected, could he drop the case? No, because it's actually not the administration's case. It's the Republican attorneys general. But a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president could make the case moot. Um, They could put the penalty back at a dollar. They could eliminate the rest of the language about the mandate. Um, Or they could pass a bill saying the change in 2017 was not intended to impact the rest of the law. All of those, however, would be big fights on their own. Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Native people are among those remembering Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died Friday. Representative Deb Holland paid respects to Ginsburg Sunday, streaming a live video outside the high court where people are leaving messages and flowers. I felt it was important that I come down to the Supreme Court this evening when I got back to Washington, D.C. And um, what a wonderful display of love and respect for Justice Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. The smell of flowers is everywhere. It's just, it's just uh, beautiful. Gila River Indian Community Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis in a virtual Get Out the Vote and Census rally Saturday paid tribute to Ginsburg, calling her a trailblazer. The Arizona tribal leader also expressed the importance of the Supreme Court on Indian country issues. 44 days before the next election, the passing of Justice Ginsburg exemplifies just why this election is shaping up to be the election of a lifetime, the election of all of our lifetimes. If action isn't taken, Prior to this election, the next president will decide the next justice of the Supreme Court. For tribes, for Indian country, the appointment of a judge or justice can be the difference between decisions that affirm trust and treaty obligations, like the recently decided McGirt decision that upheld tribal jurisdiction over tribal homelands, or decisions that roll back hard-fought statutes that have been under attack. Despite Ginsburg's mixed record on federal Indian law cases, tribal leaders, native attorneys, and others in Indian country see her as a champion and flooded social media with tributes. 
A tribal court has halted hemp cultivation on the Navajo Nation. The Shiprock, New Mexico District Court last week issued a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction to stop defendant Dene Benali's hemp production immediately. The rulings favored on behalf of the Navajo Nation government and citizens. They allege disharmony in the surrounding communities, problems with worker camps, and damage to the environment. The Navajo Nation claims that Benali's farm is illegal without approval from the tribe or the federal government. Protests have been held in recent weeks with people raising safety concerns about hemp farming. Benali reportedly did not testify at the hearing last week. The Navajo Times reports after the court hearing, local radio stations discussed the hemp issue and Benali supporters came to his defense. Navajo police are clearing the farms, telling workers to leave the area. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a top U.S. health official, praised the Navajo Nation during a virtual town hall Monday for its declining positive cases of COVID-19. Fauci says the tribe's a model for the rest of the United States. The reason you should be proud of what you've accomplished is that you have proven that when you do these public health measures, you can turn around a serious surge of infection. And I believe if the rest of the country looks at the model that the Navajo Nation has shown, that you can turn things around by carefully and assiduously adhering to the guidelines of avoiding infection, that we may see this happen throughout the country. The tribe has been hit hard by COVID-19, but has seen a decrease in numbers after following months of strict emergency orders. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is certainly true at my house. Americans staying home during the pandemic are eating more at home, doing more at home, ordering more deliveries that arrive in boxes at home, and some cities are struggling to keep up with the trash. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. It's not like garbage collector Yogi Miller is spying on the people whose trash he picks up, but he can't help notice some changes along his residential route in northeastern Ohio. (laughs) I can tell you a lot about people. (laughs) The biggest thing is everybody being home from work and home from school. More people means more trash. It's easy as that. Demetrius Tart has also felt the weight of extra trash along his route in Alpharetta, Georgia. Tart used to pick up 17 or 18 tons each day. Now, it's more like 22 tons. The cans are overfilled. We got to get out and clean it up sometime. We need the ground. Tart drives one of those semi-automated trash trucks. But he can't always stay a robot arm's length away from the garbage. He worries some of the extra trash he's handling might carry traces of the coronavirus. It's scary. I hate that I have to get out and touch stuff that I see and have to touch. That's the biggest fear of my job is taking something home to my family. Nationwide, residential trash volume spiked as much as 25% during the spring lockdown. Since then, it's dropped a bit, but it's still well above pre-pandemic levels. For garbage collectors, that means longer workdays and more trips to the dump. Some sanitation workers have gotten sick or had to quarantine. 
Baltimore has faced a severe shortage of trash collectors. Acting Public Works Director Matthew Garbark says it's not easy to find replacements. It is just a hard, dirty job. It is quite common for someone to walk off the job within a day or two because they just don't realize how hard the work is. There is less garbage these days at vacant office buildings and hotels, but Garbark says the commercial trash trucks that typically empty those dumpsters are not easily reassigned to residential neighborhoods. We actually use a specially designed trash truck that can fit in the narrow alleys. The contractors don't have that. Baltimore temporarily halted curbside recycling this month, so shorthanded crews can concentrate on trash pickup. Nashville is also making adjustments. Assistant Public Works Director Sharon Smith says that city will start collecting trash five days a week instead of four. It'll be shorter days, shorter routes, and much more manageable, particularly if the changes we've seen with people working from home continues on into the future. When trash collection is overwhelmed, garbage piles up in the street, drawing rats, flies, and lots of complaints from residents. Ohio garbage collector Yogi Miller says nobody wants that. They don't realize how much they need us until something happens where their trash doesn't get picked up. That's what people want. They want to put it out in the morning, and when they come home in the afternoon, they want it to be gone. There may be a silver lining to this garbage glut. David Biederman, who heads the Solid Waste Association of North America, says it has led to newfound appreciation for some frontline workers who were often invisible in the past. Today is garbage day in my neighborhood, and my neighbor has a sign on her garbage can thanking the sanitation workers. Demetrius Tart has seen similar signs on his route in Georgia, along with a child's thank you note drawn in crayon. They say, hey, you know, we really appreciate it. I mean... The sanitation, the world will stop if we stop picking up. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. Let's talk pills. To treat everything from allergies to heart problems, half of Americans take a prescription medicine every day. And nearly all of us reach for the pill bottle on occasion. It's perfectly safe, though, because the Food and Drug Administration regulates the ingredients that go into those medicinal compounds, right? Yes, assuming they're produced in the USA. Um, aren't they? Mostly, no. Take antibiotics. The New York Times reports that ingredients for the majority of these bacteria fighters are now made almost exclusively in China and India, as are the components of dozens of other major drugs. Unbeknownst to most Americans and to our doctors, China has become the world's preeminent supplier of medicines. As one major drug company puts it, if tomorrow China stops supplying pharmaceutical ingredients, the worldwide pharmaceutical industry would collapse. What's at work here is mindless globalization and deregulation. Our politicians threw open the U.S. market to drug imports while also letting foreign manufacturers go uninspected and unregulated. So, companies located in China can cut corners and undercut our own regulated pill makers. America's last producer of penicillin's ingredients, for example, shut down in 2004, leaving us dependent on China. FDA, our supposed watchdog, doesn't even know where a drug's ingredients come from. Why? Because drug companies say they don't like to reveal their sources. So they don't. The Times found that one federal database lists the existence of about 3,000 foreign drug plants that ship to the U.S., while another lists 6,800. No one knows which is correct, if either. This is Jim Hightower saying, this is ridiculous. 
For the sake of America's health, security, and economy, let's regulate all pill makers and rebuild our own industry. Today's commentary is underwritten by Wiley & Sons, publishers of Hightower's new book titled Swim Against the Current. Even a dead fish can go with the flow. Now available wherever books are sold. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Wings and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.